everybody, and welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes this week. And we took a couple weeks off, understandably. Had a couple of big events take place, getting married. We thought maybe not record a podcast on the honeymoon. But uh, now we're back, and one of the things I wanted to do in this podcast, uh, whether last week or this week, is talk a little bit about Easter. And as we've celebrated that through the last week of Holy Week and this Sunday... One of my favorite parts of Easter is actually pre-Easter, and it's a celebration that not every church does, and that's Maundy Thursday. And uh, the first thing I want to make a note about on Maundy Thursday is most people fall into either one of two options, either calling it Maundy Thursday or Monday Thursday. But it, <laughs> the trick is it's Maundy Thursday. Uh-huh. That's the correct pronunciation. That's really the correct pronunciation, Maundy Thursday. Now, for all of that, I couldn't tell you what Mondi means. I'm relying on you to tell us what that means. But <laughs> I have always loved your Mondi Thursday message. And it's one that you've given, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, both on Mondi Thursday and in Israel. It's, right. a, it's a little different in, in Israel. Garden but too. Yeah. That's a message that you give in Israel because it fits so well sitting there, you know, where they buried Christ and then doing communion together. Right is really powerful. And so in this podcast, I just wanted to take time to look back on that week, have you tell the story of Monday Thursday. And then for those that have heard it, I know there's some people here that have heard it, maybe dive a little bit deeper into some of the themes that you bring up and some common questions that we get about this lesson. Yeah. Well, first, let me just talk about the origin of Monday Thursday. It is a tradition, of course, in the church. It's not biblically mandated any more than Good Friday is. But Maundy Thursday, the Thursday before the day Jesus was crucified, before Easter, for oh many, many centuries ago, the church began to observe it. And it really centers around the teachings from John, from John 13 till almost the end, is really what happens in that upper room, mm-hmm. largely on that Thursday evening, and he begins in chapter 13, and he teach, he's teaching his disciples. Of course, they're going to the upper room to eat the Passover meal, but when he gets there, they sit down, and nobody's washed the feet, so you get the foot washing mm-hmm. that goes there, and he does that teaching, and then they have the Passover meal, which is uh, the basis for communion, the Last Supper, and then after that, he does couple of chapters worth of teaching and praying and then they leave and he teaches them as they move to the Mount of Olives after that evening. So one of the things that Jesus says in John 13, 35 is during that uh, evening, he says, a new command I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. So in the Latin Vulgate, the Latin for that is a new command is mandatum, mm-hmm. which is where we get our word mandate. And so it comes down through Latin and Old English. And to us today is not mandatum Thursday, mm-hmm. the evening he gave that new command. It comes to us as Maundy Thursday. Okay. So just coming down through the languages. So it's the evening he gave that new command. Okay. And that's how they started to remember it. So how do people... Celebrated. The church has celebrated it by focusing on foot washing. For example, a lot of churches, I shouldn't say a lot, but there are churches that will reenact foot washing mm-hmm. uh, because that's one of the things Jesus did that night. Others will basically focus on the Garden of Gethsemane and they'll do prayer services around Maundy Thursday. But something that uh, Laura, my wife, and I came up with many years ago We put together some pieces of things, and we put together what we call the communion story. And that is the story of what does communion mean, and it really traces its roots to what they were doing that night. So what Crossings has been doing, and what we do, is our Maundy Thursday service really is telling this story. Mm -hmm. So I thought maybe I would tell you the story, but if you would like a full, more dramatic account of it. I think we'll put a link to the video from last week's. Yeah. Which I think is better. I thought I would... Uh, I like some of the vintage. I, I really like 2009, yeah. 2013. Yeah. You, you can date it You know, when I looked by this the up, When I looked this up to link to the live stream on an article last week on Monday Thursday, 
if you just type in fakes, crossings, Monty Thursday, you get about 10 years worth of these and you can have your pick. But we're going to give you the latest and greatest the version of 2021, 2021 debut version. You know, we started doing this church-wide. We've been doing it in Sunday school class and various places because it's just a powerful story, as you'll see. Uh, again, it's not me. It's the story of what God did that's really powerful and it affects people. Well, I thought we'd do it a year or two and we'd do some other kind of service there, but it's actually grown every year. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because people like to hear that story over and over. I think so people look forward to it. Yeah, it's just really a story. So I'll tell you a little bit of a shortened version here so that we can dive into some deeper things that I don't get into. But I would urge you, if you haven't heard it before, after this, go and just watch it. It's about... Well, the whole service, even with the music, is 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't take a lot of time. Well, let me tell you the basics of the story. We start on Thursday night with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. And by the way, for those of you who are storytellers, this is what I call a spiral story. It's going to start on Thursday. We're going to go back 2,000 years to Abraham and make our way back to that Thursday night. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to go from that Thursday back to Palm Sunday a week earlier and make our way back to Thursday night. Then we're going to go talk about some traditions and back to Thursday night and carry on from there. So I consider this a spiral story. Mm -hmm. The Thursday is the theme and we keep going out and back. To yeah. It. So listen as I tell you this story. You'll see the structure of it. It's a very, it's a very good structure for telling a story. So on that Thursday night, Jesus and his disciples were assembled together and they were assembled to eat a meal. But the reason that they were there actually began 2,000 years earlier with Abraham. Abraham was living in Ur, modern day Iraq, and the word of God came to him and God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to Give your descendants a land that will be their own. And in a way that you don't understand, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And so God said, Abraham, I want you to get up and take your wife, take your livestock, take your household, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham trusted God. He believed God. And so he did. He got up and he went. And God led him to the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. And so he settled there with Sarah, his wife, and his livestock, and the household, his, his servants, etc. And he lived there for a number of years. And one night, God came to him again. And he said, Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. I will surely make you into a great nation, and I will give your, your descendants this land in which you're now living and I will bless all the nations of the earth because of you. But Abraham replied to God because he was puzzled. He said, Lord, Sarah and I aren't able to have children. I don't have any children. How can I know these things will happen? How can I know that this will come true? And so God answered his question in a really curious way. He said, Abraham, get me a, a heifer and a goat and a, and a ram all three years old and without blemish, and a pigeon and a young dove? Well, that's an unusual way to answer the question. But what's even more unusual is Abraham knew what to do. Mm. And so as we read this in Genesis 15 through 17, you see that he did. He got those animals and he took them to a place uh, where he was going to slay these animals. And it was probably a place where a little natural trough came together, where the land just sort of came together in a little V or something. And he took those animals, and the scripture says, specifically, he cut them in two from nose to tail. He literally cut them in half, nose to tail, and laid each side of the carcass down on either side of the little trough. And you can imagine it's bloody scene, the carcass laying there, the blood running down. Well, the question that begs to be answered is, how in the world did he know what to do? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, according to documents outside, the scriptures, you realize that in ancient times, one of the ways that kings in that era would make a treaty or make a covenant with one another is once they'd settled on the terms, they would take animals and they would do exactly what he had done. And the 
Two kings would stand there to seal the deal, if you will. And the stronger king would say, if I fail to live up to my part of this treaty, it's as though this is what you could do to me. In other words, my life, I'll give my life for upholding this covenant. And then he would walk in between those carcasses. And, you know, of course, the blood would splatter on his robe, but it was a very strong, symbolic way of saying, I'm committing to this covenant that we are making, and if I don't keep it, my life is forfeit. So Abraham knew that, and so he laid the animals out. And the scripture says he sat down to wait. And as he sat there, a deep and dreadful darkness came over him. Well, that's inexplicable in some ways, but not in others, because as I thought about this, I realized, you know what? He has to be sitting there, and the more he sits there, and the more he thinks about it, the more scared he gets, because he knows that God is able and will keep his part of this bargain. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know how he and Sarah are going to have children, but he believes God will keep his part of this bargain. But he wonders, could he and his descendants keep their part of this contract? Well, what is their part? In Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, uh, walk before me and be blameless. What does he mean? There's no law of Moses yet. There's no commands yet. What he means is be faithful just as you have been. You trusted me. And when I told you to do this, you did it. You worship the one true God. You don't worship any idols. You believe in God and God alone. And so that was the requirement for Abraham's descendants. But as he sat there, it was a deep and dreadful darkness. And as he sat there in the darkness, it says that he saw a light like a torch there and God speaking to him. And he said, Abraham, I will surely make you into a great nation. And he repeats the covenant and I will give your descendants this land and I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. He says, but Abraham, a time will come when your descendants will be strangers in a land not their own and they'll be slaves for 400 years. But Abraham, I will bring them back to this land, the inheritance, as I promised. And so the scripture says that as he sat there, he saw a smoking fire pot and the torch, just the light of it, move between those animals. And on that day, God made a covenant with Abraham. Well, as time went on, as you know from reading the Bible, Abraham and Sarah did have a child, mm -hmm. Isaac. And Isaac had a son, Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And just as God promised, sure enough, Abraham's descendants began to grow. Unfortunately, however, over the next 200 years or so, his descendants aren't faithful. They don't always worship God. They don't always trust God. They sometimes go astray after other gods of the land in which they live. And as a result of that, they didn't keep the covenant and their lives were forfeit. Nevertheless, as God had told him, a time came when there was a drought and a famine in Canaan, in the land of Israel. And so the descendants of Abraham, who were small in number, 70 of them at that time, made their way down to Egypt to find a haven, to find water for their flocks and food for their children. And sure enough, they found a haven there. But over time, that haven in Goshen, in that area of Egypt, turned into a prison because Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, as they began to grow and grow and grow in number, just as God said they would, realized that they were a threat to him. And he thought, who knows, someday they may turn on me. And so he enslaved them. And so for 400 years, the children of Abraham, the Israelites, became slaves in Egypt, building literally the infrastructure of Egypt for 400 years. But just as God had promised, even though the Israelites had not been faithful, God was faithful. And when he heard their prayers at the end of that time and saw their bitter slavery, he sent a deliverer just as he promised he would. Mm. And so he sent Moses to go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world at this time. And he sent this shepherd, Moses, in to speak to him. And he said, Moses, tell Pharaoh... God says, let my people go. 
Well, Pharaoh said, I do not know your God, and I will not let these people go. And there ensued, as you read the book of Exodus, some plagues, or really more accurately, judgments on the gods of Egypt. God turned the Nile into blood, and hail like fire fell from the sky, and the and the cattle uh, were dying, and the crops failed, and one after another, God judges Egypt, and yet Pharaoh is obstinate, and he won't let these people go. Until finally, the 10th and last judgment, God spoke to Moses, and he said, Moses, this time you go and tell Pharaoh that I am going to pass through Egypt, and when I do, the firstborn of every household will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the slave girl at her loom. And so Moses did as he was told. He went to Pharaoh and he told him, God is going to pass through Egypt and the firstborn of every household will die. Pharaoh was furious. His nation was in ruins. And he said to Moses, I will not let these people go. Get out of my sight. If I ever see you again, I will kill you. And so Moses left and he went to the Israelites because God had given him a message for them as well. And so he gathered the Israelites together and he said, God says that from now on, this will be the first month of your year. And on the 10th day of this first month, each of you will take a lamb, one year old lamb without blemish or defect from the flock and bring that lamb and care for it until the 14th day. And on the 14th day at twilight, each household will slaughter that lamb. You're going to take some of the blood of that lamb and paint it on the lintel of your house, on the doorpost of your house. Because you see, when God passes through Egypt, he will kill the firstborn in every household. But when he sees the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, he will pass over your homes. And when you roast this lamb and eat it that evening, I want you to eat it with bitter herbs to remind you of the bitterness of this slavery. And I want you to eat it with unleavened bread because you won't have time to let the bread to rise because you will leave Egypt that night. And he said, eat it as though you were in haste. Eat it with your sandals on and your cloak tucked into your belt and your staff in your hand because surely God will deliver you from Egypt. So the Israelites believed what God had said, and so they did. On the 10th day, they, each household selected a lamb, and on the 14th day, they brought the, that lamb out, and they slaughtered it, and they painted the doorpost of their homes, and they ate, ate the lamb. Well, that night, just as he had said, God passed through Egypt, and the firstborn of every household died. But the scripture says that in the camp of the Israelites, not even a dog barked. But that next morning when they awoke, the scripture says that there was a weeping and wailing in Egypt such as has never been nor will ever be again because there was not a single household in Egypt where there was not someone dead from Pharaoh's own son to the child of the prisoner in the dungeon. And so Pharaoh called Moses and he said, go, take these people, get out. And so, just as God had promised, Moses led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and to the land that God had promised Abraham, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. But the story doesn't end happily there because God had kept his part of the covenant, but the Israelites had not kept theirs, and their lives were forfeit. And so God instituted with Moses a way to defer the payment of that debt, defer the death sentence that hung over them. And so in the law of Moses, you see this sacrificial system where people from time to time would be uh, required to bring an animal, whether it was to the tabernacle in the wilderness or later to the temple that Solomon would build. And the priest would take that animal and it would sacrifice the animal, would kill the animal. And so the blood of the animal was a way to postpone the debt. It didn't satisfy their unfaithfulness, but it postponed that debt. And so from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus for 1,400 years, that they would periodically bring sacrifices to propitiate the wrath of God, to postpone the wrath of God. 
One other thing God instituted was he said to Moses, each year on the holiest day of your year, all of Israel, all the Israelites should gather. And this will be called Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And on that one day each year, it will be a solemn assembly and people will fast because it will be a day of remembrance of God's faithfulness and their lack of faith in the covenant and a day of repentance. And so when they come together that day, the high priest will lead out a goat and he'll place his hands on the head of this goat. And as we read in Leviticus chapter 16, it said the high priest would confess the sins of the nation. And it's as though he was transferring them in some way onto that goat. He would confess the fact that we have not been faithful in this and some of us have gone away after other gods. And he would confess the sins of Israel and he would place it on the goat. And then when he had finished, a man was appointed to take that goat outside the camp, outside the city, into the desert. And there the goat would die alone. And that was in some way to remind the people that somehow the sin had to be dealt with. That custom is where we get our idea of a scapegoat. Scapegoat is someone who bears the punishment for something someone else did. And it comes from this story. And so down through the centuries, they would make the sacrifices and postpone the debt that was that uh, they owed to God under the covenant with their father, Abraham. And so on that Thursday night, Jesus and his disciples were gathered together to eat that Passover meal in remembrance. They were, would roast the lamb and the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread. And that's why they were there on that Thursday night. Well, actually that whole week had been really busy in Jerusalem because the Passover remembrance or celebration was one of the feasts that if you could, every Jew was supposed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate it. Now, not everyone could, not everyone could afford to, but literally Jerusalem would double and triple in size. Tens and tens of thousands of Jews would come from all over the world to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. In fact, so many Jews came to Jerusalem that the Romans would bring extra troops. Fearful that that many Jews together, who knows, a rebellion could start. And so they'd bring in all kinds of extra troops. And in fact, the Roman governor of the region, that year was Pontius Pilate, would himself come from his palace in Caesarea. He would travel to Jerusalem and he would stay there for that week. Well, that Sunday, before the Thursday night, you may remember Jesus was on the Mount of Olives and he came riding into Jerusalem and the crowds were huge in Jerusalem. And when they saw him riding in on that colt, they took palm branches and they ran out to line the road and they would wave the branches and they would shout Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us or rescue us. Well, Jesus had indeed come to save them, but not exactly in the way they had in mind. Well, they would throw those palm branches down in front of him to sort of line the, the road, and that was a sign of royalty. It was sort of like a triumphant king coming back from a victory. And so Jesus, as he rode in that day, was coming into Jerusalem. But that day is actually a very unique day. You see, that Sunday was the 10th day of the first month of the year. It was Lamb Selection Day. It was the day that all of those Jews in Jerusalem had come. Either they brought a lamb with them, or most of them more likely purchased a lamb that day. And the shepherds around there, if you go to Israel today in Jerusalem, you can see the shepherds' fields. And there are huge fields around Jerusalem where those shepherds would prepare all year to have plenty of lambs available to sell to the people that had come. And so they were all picking their unblemished lambs that day. Well, as Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, God had chosen his lamb. Jesus was God's lamb that he had chosen that day. And you know, if you think about it, it explains something that happened 
oh, three years earlier in Jesus' ministry when he was just beginning. If you remember the story early in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist and two of his disciples were standing in a village and Jesus came walking into the village. And, you know, I would have expected John to say, I have been telling you about the one that's going to come after me. That's him. That's the Messiah. You know, I've been telling you about the one who's greater than I. That's him, Jesus. But instead, he says something curious, but maybe not so curious. He said, look there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when you read that in that story, you think, what a curious way to, to say that. And yet, as Jesus comes riding in, on the 10th day of the first month, you realize, as Paul would later say, he is the Passover lamb. He is God's Passover lamb. Well, as Jesus came in that day on the 10th day, the following Thursday was the 14th day of the first month, and it was time for the lamb to be slain. And so Jesus and his disciples began to eat the Passover meal. And you know, over time, there weren't many commands given to them about Passover. Eat it in haste, eat the whole lamb that night, no leftovers because it, they were going to leave Egypt originally, the bitter herbs and the bread. But they'd come up with a, oh, I suppose you, an order of service, a little liturgy around it. It's called a Haggadah. You could buy a Haggadah today that just gives you the order of when you eat things, the order of when you pray and the prayers you should pray. And it was a service and they too had a, an order of service. And Jesus was leading them through that service. And the third cup of wine, there are four cups of wine in a Passover Seder. That meal is called a Seder. But in the little program, there are four cups of wine and there's a prayer that is said with each one. And the third cup of wine is after dinner. It's called the cup of redemption. And the scripture says that after dinner, Jesus took his cup and he's supposed to say a prayer and all the disciples get their cup and they all drink. If you go to a Passover Seder today, that's exactly what will happen. Everybody at the table will lift their cup. The prayer is said, everyone takes a sip of their wine. And so Jesus begins, but he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. You may remember what he said and it's not what he was supposed to say. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. All of a sudden, what are you and I thinking? Abraham, a covenant, the blood. What's he talking about? He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink each one of you from this cup. Well, the disciples were shocked. I mean, they've been doing this since they were little boys. And this is not what you say, and this is not what you do. So he's broken the, the procedure. And yet, what he said is a little eerily familiar to them. I mean, it, in a weird sort of way, because that I'll drink of this cup and I'll give you a cup was eerily like a wedding ceremony. In those days, it was customary, actually, still, an uh, Orthodox Jewish wedding. You'll see a cup of wine in the drinking of the wine. But basically, what that cup of wine was is that when a young man decided he wanted to be married to a young woman, the father of the groom would meet with the father of the bride and they would agree on the covenant, the marriage covenant and the bride price and those things. But when they had agreed, then the father of the groom would bring the young man and the father of the bride would bring the young woman together and there would be a glass of wine. And the young man would drink from the cup first and it's as though he is saying to her, I love you. I want to marry you, and I will commit my life to you. In other words, I'm making a lifelong covenant with you. And then he would give the cup to her. And contrary to popular belief, there was a lot of pressure in those days, maybe still today, to kind of do what your parents wanted you to do. But she didn't have to agree. She could pass on the cup, and she could set the cup down and let the cup pass by. But if she agreed, she would take the cup and she would say, I love you and I commit my life to you. And she would take a drink from the cup. It was a very intimate ceremony. It was a, a covenant making. And so that's what it looked like Jesus was doing. He would drink from the cup and hand that cup to them. And that was such an intimate thing to do. You know, later, 
after that dinner finished, they would leave that upper room and they would make their way to the Mount of Olives. When they got to the Mount of Olives, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus was very troubled. This is late at night, maybe early Friday morning by this time. And he went away and he, he fell down to pray. And I've always thought this was unusual, what he prayed there. I thought he would just pray, Lord, now that the time is here and the suffering is upon me, if there's some other way to do this, then let's do it. I don't want to go to the cross. But instead, he says it in a really curious way. He says, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass me by. And you know, I think the traditional understanding of that, Cole, is that he would be drinking the cup of God's wrath. And I think that's true. I mean, I think that symbology is there. And I think he understood that as the Passover lamb, he was going to drink the cup of God's wrath, all the wrath that was owed for the unfaithfulness, the death sentence, literally, that was owed by the Israelites, the death sentence that was owed by you and me because of our unfaithfulness and, and not following God and God alone. And I think there's some truth to that, but I can't help but think of the similarity of what he did there. And now he puts himself in the position and he says, if I must drink of this cup, then I'll make this covenant. I will commit my life to my bride. You think about the church being the bride of Christ. And that's not true in any particularly literal way. I, I think it's it's used as a metaphor because it's the most intimate relationship we know. And Jesus, unlike that groom who, when he drank that cup and said, I'll give my life to you, he didn't necessarily think he'd be called on to die. But Jesus knew that if he drank from that cup, his life would be given that very night and in a gruesome and painful and horrific way. And so he said, let this cup pass me by, but not my will but your will be done. Well, you know, the answer to that as well as I do, there was no way, other way. And so he drank the cup and he committed his life. And so they came for him and at 9 a.m. the next morning, they nailed him to the cross. Well, as Jesus was hanging on the cross that Friday morning, I told you already how many Jews were there for the Passover. Well, that morning, they're literally all coming into Jerusalem. And the Romans had taken him outside the city to crucify him. And they crucified him along a major road because for the Romans, the whole point of crucifixion was to make a point. And crucifixion victims were placed on the side of roads, very prominent. And so he was right outside the city walls along a road that led into the city. And there were thousands of Jews coming into the city because that Friday evening, at sundown would begin the Sabbath. Well, on the Sabbath, starting that Friday evening, they were not allowed to prepare food. They could only walk a certain distance. They were very much restricted on the Sabbath. So normally on Friday, they would prepare two sets of food. They would buy two sets of supplies so that they would have the Sabbath supplies there. So there were thousands of Jews coming by and seeing him there on the, on the cross as they came in to make the Sabbath preparations. And as Jesus hung there, the scripture says that about noon, darkness came over the whole earth. And you know, I think to myself, why the darkness? And originally, when I read that, I thought, because it's a dark time. Because it's the time where Satan believes, at least, that he is ascendant. And darkness has, has come upon the whole world. And I think there's some truth in that. But then I think back to that covenant with Abraham and the deep and dreadful darkness came over Abraham at the beginning of that covenant. And here we are at the end. The accounting is due, if you will. It's time for the judgment on that covenant. And it seems appropriate to me that there would be a dreadful darkness at the end as well. And so the people, of course, all these Jews are terrified. What is happening? You know, darkness in the middle of the day. And as Jesus hung there, he cries out in a loud voice in the darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, you and I know, and I'm sure many of our listeners know, that's the first verse of the 22nd Psalm. 
And you know, just like a song lyrics, when you hear the first line of the song, all the rest of the lyrics come back into your your mind. Well, that's what happened with them. He says the first line of that psalm. And you know, they've been singing that psalm. They've been singing a lot of those psalms since they were little kids. And as he said that, they go, oh, yeah, I remember the rest of that psalm. That psalm was written by David a little more than 900 years earlier. But listen to this psalm. He cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you left me all alone? It says, dogs have surrounded me and a band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lots for my clothing and they divide my garments among them. He goes on to say, and all who pass by and see me mock me. They shake their heads at me and say, he trusted in God. Let God rescue him if God wants him. And just poignantly, it says this, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and it melts within my breast. My strength has dried up like pottery and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. O oh Lord, you have laid me in the dust of death. And those people there literally hearing that psalm saw it happening before their very eyes. What David had said nine centuries earlier was happening right in front of them. And the scripture says at three o'clock, about the time of the sacrifice, they began the afternoon sacrifice by having the shofar player, the trumpet blower, go up to the very top of the temple and blow the trumpet that it was time for the sacrifice and various people would come to bring their sin offering to postpone their debt. And about that time, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, it is finished, and he died. Well, I originally when I saw that, when I first became a Christian, I thought, well, yes, his agony on the cross is finished. That six hours of hanging on the cross after the beating and the whipping and that agony is done, and that's true. I think there's, that's true. But then as you think back to that covenant with Abraham and the sacrifices to postpone the death and the death sentence that hung over everyone, the Israelites, you, me, because of our unfaithfulness, that debt had become due. And Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, hung on the cross. Jesus, the scapegoat, sent outside the city to die alone with all the sins of the people on his head. When he said it is finished, I think in a cosmic sense, he said the covenant is done, the bill is paid, and the wrath of God is satisfied for the covenant that God made with Abraham, and it is finished. And so, when we take communion, that's why we call this the communion story. You see, when we take the bread and we take the cup, we don't just remember what Jesus did at that Passover meal. We remember what it means, what actually happened, that Jesus, the Passover lamb, paid our debt in full. No more postponing. He completely paid our debt. And when he said, as often as you do this, remember me, I think he said, remember this story. Remember what God did over those 2,000 years. He loved you so much that he was willing to give his son to pay the penalty that we all incurred. And then finally, I really think with communion, it's not just a cosmic story that all comes together with Jesus. It's also a very intimate act. I really think when we take that cup, every time we do it, we should think about it as Jesus drank from that cup and said, I love you and I will give my life for you. And in fact, he did. And every time we take that cup, we can let that cup pass us by. Or we can say, I love you and all that I am and all that I have is yours. And that's what communion is all about. 
That's how we celebrate Maundy Thursday, is by telling the story of what did that meal actually mean. Wow. Well, like I said before this, every time you tell it, there's something new, and it's just amazing how you bring all of that together in the big story of Scripture. And, you know, a question that I have heard asked before, and a question I, I wonder is, how, you know, how, how did you start to put these pieces together? You know, so you, once you say it, it makes a lot of sense when you look back to Genesis chapter 15, 16, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense of the Passover. And, you know, the Passover is a direct connection because they're, they're having the Passover feast. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the most interesting piece, I think, is the wedding yeah, uh, the scapegoat and the wedding thing. Because if you just think about, let me go to the scapegoat first. Because if you think about the law of Moses and the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat idea of Leviticus sixteen stands on its own in a sense that you will uh, confess and have somebody else at least pay a down payment on your debt every year. But what you don't realize is that, and the same with the Passover meal, it's a remembrance of God's faithfulness. But it's not until you get to Jesus that you realize, oh. This isn't just a ritual to remind the Jews. This is practice for where all of this comes together. It doesn't make sense why these things happen until they do. And then you get the Passover meal. You get Mm -hmm. the Passover lamb. That's Jesus. You also get the scapegoat crucified outside the city, dying alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God literally turns his face away. Mm -hmm. The scapegoat dies alone. And you see those things come together and you go, okay, this cannot be a coincidence. I mean, right. this is literally played out. But you ask a good question about the wedding thing. That came together, I think your mom actually put that together, Laura, my wife, uh, and said, you know, it's really interesting because I, it was very hard to explain why Jesus broke the Passover Seder. Right. Now, it's not hard to explain what he said the idea of this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's like, ah, yes, he is going to pay the debt on the covenant of Moses. I mean, this is very good theology here. Jesus said, I didn't come to break the law or do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. Perfect sense. He's like, I'm going to operate under the law of Moses to fulfill the law of Moses. It requires a sacrifice and I will be that sacrifice. So he literally fulfilled the law paid the debt, canceled it out, mortgage is gone. So what he said makes sense. He's making a new covenant, but instead of animals being cut into, he is the Passover lamb. Mm-hmm. He is he is the one whose blood will do it. But the idea of offering the cup to them, that doesn't make any sense at mm. all. And so again, this is a bit of conjecture. I can't prove this. I mean, the tradition was there and Jesus right. did it. But putting those two together, it's like, this just seems too too much to be coincidence. There's yeah. also an intimacy to this act because salvation is, you now as Americans, we think salvation is individual. And that's true. It's intimate. Let Jesus into your heart. Mm-hmm. You know, have a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus. The way we talk about salvation, we appreciate that intimacy. But actually, scripturally, if you look at it, salvation is way more than about you and me. Salvation is God working in humanity mm-hmm. as well. And so I think that you see the cosmic God working through all of these things to bring about the redemption of the elect. But we don't usually see the intimacy of it. And that's where that two and two just made four. It mm-hmm. just made a lot of sense that the reason he did it, the way he did it, tied into that. So I admit to you, there's some conjecture there, but I don't think that's a big leap. No, I don't think so at all. And and if you zoom out, so like you're saying, there's an intimate aspect to it. One-on-one, there's a bigger aspect. And and the bigger aspect is interesting as well. So he fulfills, he pays the debt. He fulfills the day of atonement. He is the true sacrificial lamb. What's the connection between the Mosaic law the Day of Atonement, the Passover, and the covenant with Abraham. What does he fulfill? What is still there? What does that leave us with now in the church age? That's a great question. Very astute. And of course, this is a good thing to talk about because you can't go into any of this in the story. But here's my view on this. I'll give you two views, but my view, I'll give you my view, is it's obvious what's happening when once you hear it, once you understand it with the law of Moses. 
there's a covenant that's made. There are two covenants, well, more than that, but we've got the Mosaic covenant, you have the Abrahamic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant, in my mind, is, and in Paul's mind, is a subset of Abraham. Mm-hmm. The law was given to you as a school teacher to bring you to Christ. Right. So the Abrahamic covenant's truling along, and you have this Mosaic covenant for a specific group of people. And Jesus, uh, I mean, the reason we don't keep all the law of Moses today is it's done. Some people say, oh, he abolished it. No, he fulfilled it. Mm-hmm. And that's why it had to be done the way it was done. And there's a beauty in that. God satisfies his own just requirements right. to fulfill it. So it's easy to see how the Mosaic covenant is fulfilled. And Jesus begins a new covenant, literally the New Testament, the new covenant, the church, the elect. I'll just use the word church to refer to all those that God has chosen, all those who are Christ followers, place their trust in Christ to save, etc. But what about that? Uh, and your quiz is your question is what about the Abrahamic covenant? Well, there were three promises. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy to see the third promise. I'll bless all the nations of the earth through you. Well, that's the one Abraham and his descendants never really understood, except maybe, oh, we're really good people. Maybe we can educate these heathen, mm-hmm. you know, but really we see it now and go, oh my goodness, who saw that coming? He's going to save all mankind, not just the Jews. I mean, that's just a powerful picture. So then you have to say, so that is fulfilled in Christ. Uh-huh. The first two, though, you're going to have a great nation, and you are going to have a land that I will give you that's your own. Well, that's typically been understood to have been uh, fulfilled with Abraham's descendants and the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. Here's where we part ways. Some people say today, dispensationalists, that, and I appreciate this and understand it, I'm not trying to disparage it, but they would look at those two and say, that has yet to be completely fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not unchristian. They believe that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that this is in any way really odd. It's just that they're saying it, that in the thousand-year reign, God will fulfill that, and the Jews really will. They'll believe in Christ, and they will inhabit that land and rule with Christ for a thousand years. I don't see it that way. I think that's a, in my view, that's a stretch. That's really creating something that if indeed the third promise comes true through the church, I think that he did fulfill his promise in that the Jews had the land of Israel, their unfaithfulness, they did not keep it. But now that's coming true in a cosmic sense, just like the third one. I think that the people that Abraham could not envision, his descendants, as Paul says in Romans, the descendants of Abraham are the ones who had the faith of Abraham. And who is that? The church. Mm -hmm. And where is the land that we've inherited? Heaven. It is the promised land to which we will go. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to understand those three things as being fulfilled in the short term in the Jews and in a cosmic sense in Mm -hmm. Christ and the church. Any thoughts on that? So if if you have, almost if you have two sets of parentheses, right? The first one opens with, Abraham, of course, there's others, but for these, mm-hmm. and then within that one, you have another parenthesis or a bracket or something that opens with Moses. We get a real closed bracket with Moses at Christ. Right. But we still have an open parenthesis, at least partly, you're saying, right. on the bigger covenant with Abraham that we are living in. We're living in part of the promise, and part of the promise will be fulfilled. Part of the promise was already fulfilled. So we're, that's kind of the already and not yet yes. that we live in right Typical now. Typical Jewish prophecy. In, in other words, there's a short-term temporal fulfillment. And I say short-term, it took hundreds of years. But in God's sense, a short-term temporal fulfillment foreshadowing the ultimate fulfillment. Right. You know, I'm going to suggest, see what you think about this, but I, I read that Paul's language about grafting in Mm-hmm. You know, you get the faithful Jews and he's grafting in the believing Gentiles is, and that image of the church as God has grafted in all who have faith in Christ. I'm going to suggest that I think this is very true to Paul's understanding of how these promises would be fulfilled. I may be stretching a little there, but it makes a lot of sense to me that that seems to be the way Paul understood this as well. Yeah, I think so too. So as you've delivered this message now, you know, 20 or 30 times, I know you study for it each year and practice. What are some of the things that you've learned or added to it over the years? That's a good question. You know, and don't do what I say, not what I do, but I actually don't practice it. And I just wing it. 
Mm-hmm. I do, however, usually listen to the year befores and go, oh, yeah, yeah. And here's what I'm listening for. No longer am I listening for the arc of the story. After you've heard this once, you've got the arc of the story. You go, okay, that's too good. Too many light bulbs went on there. And you see how cool God actually is. You don't forget that. But, you know, one of the things in, in being a storyteller and also just telling lessons is there are certain key phrases. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that I make sure to repeat over and over. You know, their lives were forfeit. They were postponing a debt. Uh, it's time for the lamb to be slain. And, and those phrases are there not so much for emotional effect. I'm not, a, unfortunately, a real emotionally powerful teacher. There are people that could tell you this story and have you weeping, you know, halfway mm-hmm. through. But for me, I say those things so that because I think they're catalysts, you go, ding, the light bulb just went on. I see the connection here. So I usually listen for and try to remind myself that there are certain key phrases mm-hmm. that help connect the dots. Yeah. Has it changed? It changes every time. The arc of the story doesn't, but if you listen to it, uh, there are always little things that are added and you hope not left out. My biggest fear whenever I teach this is that about 10 minutes after I'm done, I go, oh, I forgot to tell them this and that is so cool. Uh-huh. You know, how could I have forgotten to mention this? So for me, the preparation is listen to it, think about it for a little bit and then just go tell the story. Wow. Well, that's pretty cool because that that's a nice insight into a certain style of teaching. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a style that you really you're really good at. Yeah, it's probably not everybody's style, style of it's teaching. It's a great style. It's not everybody's style, but this is this is really kind of a master class in the storytelling aspect with a great story as well. And I, I just love how it weaves all the themes together. It does, and you know the way I like to teach in general. And and again, there are other ways, and some of them are very good, uh, better probably. But I I call it immersion. And I like to be so immersed in the story, so immersed in the text. This is true for anything I teach, not just storytelling. I want to have studied it and everything about it, that it's just in me. And then when you teach, you're teaching not what you have written down so much, although that's, that's a good thing. You're really teaching from what is inside of you. And I think that brings a certain sincerity to teaching is you can teach a lot of things through the art of teaching, the Mm -hmm. art of speaking. You can be a great speaker, but it's an entirely different thing as to speaking what's authentically soaked into you. And Mm -hmm. I just would want to be, and I know you do this too, and I'm sure many of our listeners that teach do it as well. I want to be so soaked in the scripture Mm -hmm. that... The Spirit has plenty of things to use that comes. And that's why I tend not to script my lessons. They'd be more powerful if I did, but I'm perfectly happy just delivering from the the storehouse that you've soaked in. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I like to do these stories, is just let's soak in it so that you just tell the story. It's literally part of it. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.